starting to hear me say the word success, and that's when you know the, uh, the podcast is actually starting. So that's really it. We're going to talk for about an hour. This isn't like a um, conversation between us and the audience. This is a conversation between two playwrights on stage, and you get to passively sit and watch. <laughs> we on the same page with that? Right, laugh, emote, holler, yeah, all you want. All right, we good? Let's go, let's do this. Success. This is a subject that comes up time and time again on this podcast. I am clearly obsessed with talking about it and am continuously curious how other playwrights define it for themselves. There are standard measures of success for a playwright. Do you have fans of your work? How many plays are you getting produced? How big are the theaters where your productions are taking place? Which theaters are commissioning your work? How much money are you making through your writing? Have you made it to Hollywood yet? What about a Tony Award, a Pulitzer, or an Oscar? It's like success starts to morph into, when is enough enough? But the reality is, so few playwrights achieve at those levels. And I've talked to many of them, some of them Pulitzer, Tony, Oscar winners. They don't believe they've become a success. So where does that leave the rest of us, literal thousands of playwrights, writing new plays and hoping somebody or some theater will find interest in us? Let me put it in another way. Most of you in the audience today are not playwrights, yet you all have professions, vocations, avocations. What defines success for you? Or who defines success for you? In the playwriting world, there are layers upon layers of people we need to connect with, who we need to read our work, and deem us worthy for even being considered to eventually one day maybe be allowed on a path that maybe might lead to some level of success. So many obstacles. Maybe you have them, too, in the work you do. When we measure ourselves against all of that, it's really easy to get pulled into a downward spiral. And there is not much distance between the concept of success and worthiness. Once you start to wonder if you're worthy, you can find yourself on a dark path quickly. And I've been there many, many times. And this is where it led me. I realized success is an ever-changing target. Nobody's defined it with any clarity, so I get to define it myself. What I decided to do is eradicate the word entirely. I no longer judge myself as successful or unsuccessful. I know myself when I am done writing a new play. Are you satisfied? If I am, then job well done. If I am not, then I get to go keep working until I am. That puts me in control and not the multitude of judges out there. Even better, by flipping that concept of success into a question of satisfaction, I came to realize something about my writing. I really like it. I realized I write plays I want to see. I might be the only one who likes them in the end, and, and that is okay. It's okay because I have a fan, me. I'm my biggest fan. And that is ultimately what anybody can take away from this, whether you're a playwright or not. Be your own biggest fan, and you will always be a success. Theme song. <laughs> Which goes something like this. Dun, 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 dun. Dun dun dun. Hi! Dun 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 dun. How are you? And it goes on like that. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the first live taping of the Subtext Podcast. My name is Brian James Polak. I am the host and producer of this pod. And to give you all a little context of what this is, every month I record an interview with a playwright and broadcast it out to the world. The reason is because as a playwright, I've come to believe playwrights are the coolest people and others need to know more about them. 
So here we are. I've been doing this, as I said earlier, to close to seven years now. And if you like what you hear and you're into the podcast thing, you can subscribe to the podcast through any podcast platform, such as Apple Podcasts, and future episodes will automatically be zapped into your devices through a series of lasers and magic tricks. I don't actually really understand how that part of podcasting works. Um, you can also follow us on all the social medias if that's something that's interesting to you. Okay, enough of all that. Let's get to this conversation with the great Amy Kwamberry. She is the rain, she is the, this is usually a bit that I would re-edit and say over. Now I've called myself out, but this is the beauty of being live. Amy Kwamberry is the Lorraine Hansberry Professor of English at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, where, in addition to receiving multiple research awards, she has directed both the MFA program in creative writing and the Wisconsin Institute of Creative Writing. She's the author of several books of fiction and poetry, including the novel, When I'm Gone, Look for Me in the East. Uh, which was recently released to critical acclaim. Everything else you need to know, you'll learn through this conversation. Friends, this is Amy Kwamberry. Hello. Hi. We're doing the thing. We are, we are. I get to take my mask off. I know, I know. Today was my first day in a theater since February of 2020. And I do have to admit, it came with a little, um, sorry, let me move this. It came with a little, I don't know, anxiety. I feel like I'm acting now. <laughs> uh, yeah, I felt anxious in the audience. It was weird. Hmm. Hmm. So uh, my first question for you is, as, a, as an accomplished writer of fiction and poetry, what gives you the nerve to also be talented as a playwright? Yes, so let's see. <laughs> I have a comment, and I think it relates to, again, what you just talked about with respect to success, right? And I think it's the fact that I'm not super interested in success, but what I am interested in is, and I think this would be my advice for all writers out there, begin your careers as poets. Because, like, nobody cares about poets, you know? Nobody cares. Like, there, there is no measure of success for a poet. And so the success very quickly becomes something that you realize you don't really need to be you know, thinking about. So when it comes to my career, I really think in terms of, like, gravy. Like, that's the word I always like to think. Like, everything I've done is gravy. And what I mean by that is, like, you can eat prime rib. You don't need gravy. It's just extra, right? You know? Oh, so it's yeah. like everything I've done is just gravy. So it's like, okay, I'm a poet. And hmm, maybe I'll try writing some fiction and it works out, kind of, and it's like gravy. And then the same thing with playwriting. It's like, hmm, maybe I'll try my hand at, you know, at writing a play. And then it works out, and it's just gravy. Uh -huh. And so if you see everything as gravy, then you never feel like, you, you know, that you're owed anything or that you've failed in certain kinds of ways. It's all just like nice things that are happening for you, so. That's, that's funny you say gravy, because in a, I think in a previous conversation I recorded for this, I, I referred to, and it might have been off mic, I cannot remember now, but I referred to success as food as a meal, you know, like uh, you're constantly looking to achieve something else. You, you, you get a meal, you know, success, you eat it, you're nourished for a while, and then a time passes, you need another meal. So then you're kind of seeking that next success. Yeah. I, I don't necessarily describe myself as a Buddhist, but I am a Buddhist sympathizer. So that's how I kind of like to think of myself. And so along those lines, you know, it's, and it's not just Buddhism, it's many other religious world religions as well, but the idea of not being attached to outcomes, right? Because it's true, like the more I attach to an outcome, then the more I have, you know, expectations for what it needs to look like, the more I've kind of worked myself into a little box because I'm not willing then to think beyond that and to think about possibilities, right? So, yeah, I've never been somebody, I don't, my sister's actually out here from, um, from Massachusetts, so anyway, but I don't know if she would say that that's true or not, the idea that I've never really been super attached to outcomes, but um, I like to tell myself that now. So, yeah. So yes, it's about well, how letting, do you think you came to believe that? To not being attached to outcomes? Yeah. I think it's because in the past, you know, that the times when I really was attached to outcomes are times when things did not go well. 
you know? It's because, again, I really had kind of an agenda for what I wanted something to look like. And then when it didn't look like that, even if it looked 95% like that, it, it felt like a failure in certain ways because it didn't look 100% like what I thought it should look like, right? Mm -hmm. And so again, just over time, just realizing, you know, the more, the less I can have my hand on the wheel, like the better things go. Um, so yeah. Is that different than uh, the way you were as a child? Were you always <laughs> sort of like centered in this way? Uh, well, probably not. It is true. Like, you know, as a kid, I was, um, I, I, I do like right angles, you know, so I have a way of like, <laughs> I am fairly, you know, even now, like, okay, all right, that's, yeah, that, okay, yeah. Uh, you know, when I, when I enter rooms or when I leave rooms, I, I always look to see what, what the door looks like, you know, what, what angle is the door at? You know, I like certain angles. Um, when I was a very young child, I, I was famous in our family because I would actually fold my dirty clothes before putting them in the, in the clothes hamper. Um, and no, I, I, it's not OCD, it's just, I just thought, I mean, I'm into aesthetics. I think that's what it is, I'm into aesthetics. It needs to do. You should fold it putting into the washer. <laughs> it might come out neater. Uh, yeah. Note to self. <laughs> so uh, when did the uh, idea of writing kick in for you? Yeah, so when I was a kid, um, I remember I had, or my mom had, our family had like a typewriter, like a manual typewriter. And I've just always been into, although I'm not like a technophobe, I am kind of a technophobe actually, but something about keyboards, you know, those kinds of things I've always sort of been fascinated with. So, you know, we had a typewriter and as soon as I, like, you know, learned how to read and write, I was, I was always constantly, like, writing little stories, writing little poems, writing little things. And, and again, I never made the distinction between, oh, is this a play? Is this short form fiction? Is this an essay? Like, I was just writing, you know what I mean? Um, and I was thinking about it recently, in many ways, like, the kind of play that kids do, like, really, I mean, obviously it's storytelling, but if you really think about it, like, most kids are playwrights because you have these little characters, you make sets for them, you're like, hey, rah, 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 you know, and like, that's what you're doing in many ways. So it's true that because I had the typewriter and then I eventually graduated up to like our electric typewriter, ooh, wow, oh, you know, um, it just made the, the idea of writing like that much easier. But I have to say that when I hit a certain age, like probably I would say about 10 or 11, I did lots of other things and, and writing kind of was just something on the side, right? And so when I was in high school, um, even through college, I didn't necessarily think of myself as a writer. You know, I had friends who were writers and I would watch them and be like, it was interesting to me that they had journals and they would write just for fun. You know, I would see them in the suite, you know, when I was in college, I'd be like, what are you doing? They'd be like, I'm writing in my journal. I'd be like, why? You know, like, <laughs> is it for class? Like, what are you up to? Um, and so I started getting into poetry because of that, because there were girls in the suite who would just write poems, you know, which I thought was kind of just like, oh, wow, cool. Um, but it really wasn't until, I, it sounds odd to say that I went to graduate school in writing, and that's when I finally realized, hey, maybe, maybe I can make this work, right? But I am somebody, and this is something that I talk about with my students, and I think about in general, that if you want to have a life in the arts, you cannot underestimate the importance of luck and good fortune, right? And so I'm somebody, like, I've been in the right places at the right times just like throughout my entire life and I recognize that um, and so yeah so there's a bit of luck involved in this whole thing too I too had a person uh, I knew when I was a teenager who wrote poetry and I don't know if uh, you knew of these things or if anybody out in the audience has heard of these things but I remember when I was a freshman in high school there were these journals you could basically like pay to get to publish your poem and they would publish, a, like one of them would have like 1,500 poems because they would advertise in the back of magazines that young people uh, read and it would say, do you want to be a published poet and pay $50? And it's like, mom, can I have $50? And then you'd submit your play. But my friend Erica did that. She got her play in this book and she showed it to me. And I was like, wow, you're a published poet. That's amazing. And she said, you should write poetry too. And I did, and it was a big mistake because all of my poems were about Jocelyn, and um, Jocelyn didn't like me. So it set me back in my writing career probably about 15 years. Yeah, I think every poet probably has a Jocelyn somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> so, so in this interim period, you know, 10, 11, what did you start doing? Like, what was life like? You said you... you I'm not sure if you said this out loud or if it was earlier when we were talking. You're from Massachusetts, from the North Shore, right? Yeah. Mm, yeah. So the North Shore, so Danvers, about 17 miles north of Boston. Yeah, it's wicked awesome. <laughs> My dad, our dad has the accent. I kind of, like, every once in a while I try and get it like, 
oh my God, I can't believe how hard that was. Yeah. But like, that's about like all I can say, so. Yeah, as somebody from New Hampshire, I, when I write plays, I write a note at the top of the play that says, please don't try to use an accent. <laughs> it's not worth it. <laughs> <laughs> so, what, so what were you doing in Danvers in this like interim non-writing period of your life? Yeah, I was playing field hockey. So again, so we're talking about like the late 80s. So I was a field hockey player. I uh, was a not good field hockey player, um, but I was enthusiastic. Um, so I did, I was, you know, because our, our mom was somebody who really believed in the idea of being well-rounded, you know, whatever that was you know, a, euphemism, a euphemism for. So, so it was true, like I did a bunch of everything, right? I was that kid who did, you know, I played field hockey, I swam, I played the oboe in the orchestra, I did student council, you know, I just was just interested in doing just a whole bunch of different kinds of things, you know? Um, and so, yeah, I, you know, I had a job of, I was just busy being like a kid in the late 80s, basically. Would you describe your family as particularly literary? Like, were people readers? Were there, you know, shelves of books everywhere? My sister's like, no. <laughs> <laughs> we weren't literary, but we were artistic, or some of us were, right? How so? So, so my mom... Um, my, both my parents, like, they can really make, make anything. Like, they could make this table, you know, or, like, my mom could make, like, they would make lamps, or they would make bookshelves, or they would make, like, our, our mother would make our clothes, or, um, I mean, so they were, they, yeah, so they would just make stuff. I should also say that our, our grandparents actually lived here in Wisconsin in Door County. So, again, if this is Wisconsin and this is Door County, it's the peninsula that juts up into uh, Lake Michigan. And so our grandparents actually lived at the very tip of Door County in a place called Northport, where there's actually a ferry that goes over to Washington Island. And so our grandparents, our grandfather built this very Bavarian-style house um, that was actually just torn down last year for was torn down last year for various reasons. But anyway, in the basement of their house, they actually had a gift shop called the Edelweiss Gift Shop that my grandmother, <laughs> during the year, would spend like her time making things to then sell during the on-season in the gift shop. So it would be the kind of thing, like, you know, you would come in, to be like a pine cone with googly eyes on it, you know? You know? Or Her stuff was better than that, but, but again, so... We were always a family of, of that, like making things. You know, my yeah. mother would try and get like different kinds of um, biz like tiny little businesses off the ground. Like, she, like for a while, she was making these like teddy bears, you know. So she had like the Velvet Paw Company, and she would make teddy bears. Or for a while, she had a puppet thing that she was trying to get going. And so she would like get each of us kids to like help her with her puppet shows, you know. Did everything like, have googly eyes? No, but they probably should have. We would have done better, you know. Um, so yeah. And you visited you. So you visited Wisconsin when. Yes. Was this like your summer destination? Yes, often it was. Like so, back I have memories like back because I'm the youngest of five. So back in the day, like we we would come to Wisconsin by hook and by crook because it's like, you know, back in the '70s it was expensive to fly, right? And so like maybe some of us would fly, then the rest of us would pile in the station wagon. Or there was one year when we actually took a greyhound. Like I still remember this. We took a greyhound from Boston. There's like five kids, yeah, like all <laughs> the way to like Door County, which was nuts, you know. Um, so yeah, yeah, we would get here any way we could. So, so if it wasn't until grad school where you considered yourself being a writer, like, what did you think when you attended undergrad? Like, yeah. were you like, I'm gonna be a rocket scientist or? Definitely no. <laughs> um, so yeah, when I was an undergrad, I thought, I wasn't an English major, so I was liberal arts, which is one of these, at least where I went to school, the University of Virginia, it was one of these majors where like, you could do whatever you wanted. So it's true, like, I took like, the randomest set of classes. I actually signed up, and, the, and UVA, when I was there, actually had a rule that everybody at a certain level who worked at the university had to teach a class. So that meant, for example, that the football coach actually taught a class. And so I did, I signed up for like, football strategy 101, whatever, you know? And I lasted, I only lasted in like not even a week because I thought, oh yeah, you know, I'll, I'll go. And, it, and like the first day there I realized, oh, this is kind of a gut class for all the actual football players. And, it, and you had to like diagram a game and I was like, Bleh. So <laughs> I didn't last there. But so what I actually thought I was gonna do, I thought I would be in government. You know, I'm kind of a, a politics ever since I was a kid, kind of like a, I've been, I know current events. Like even as a kid, I would always just watch the news. It's because we really weren't allowed to watch a lot of TV, but we could watch the the news, you know, <laughs> so be like, it's TV, I'm watching it, like, even if it's, you know, McNeil Lear, you know what I mean, and so, so I, I was just really into that, and then in Massachusetts, you know, we had pretty liberal politics, um, let's so, talk about politics now for 45 minutes, <laughs> please, please, yeah, yeah, and so I thought when I went to college that I would be, like, um, I thought that I would somehow be involved in government, you know, and so my first year there, I took a, an actual government class, it was like American history, American foreign policy post 1945, 
right? And I lasted in that class about three weeks. I fell asleep halfway through the name of the class. <laughs> exactly. It was like that. You know, I, I had to buy like the textbook and it was like you the first page and you're like, you know, like the, the, the letters were like swimming around the page. I'm yes. like, oh my God, you know? And, and so I realized pretty quickly that I was not going to be a foreign I, I was a philosophy person. major, so I recognized that feeling yes. um, basically yes. from every class. I was actually in school in Northern Virginia, in Arlington, mentioned in your, in your play. And uh, I had acquaintances <laughs> that were at UVA. And all I knew about uh, dispatches from UVA was that everybody streaks <laughs> at UVA, or it's like a, you have to streak the green. Everybody, everybody, yeah. It's like a requirement. Thomas Jefferson's academical village, for some reason, requires nudity. Right, right. And everybody does this. I'm assuming you did. Uh, <laughs> And that, uh, I think that's all I really knew. Yeah. <laughs> that's about all you need to know, yeah. <laughs> no, I also knew that there was this great diner called like the White Spot or something. Yes, because they, had, they serve a Gus burger. Yeah. So the Gus burger was a hamburger that had a fried egg on top. Yeah. So if you had a hangover, like at three in the morning, you would already see people like lined up to get Gus burgers. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I became a vegetarian as an undergrad, <laughs> and the Gus burger was one of the last meats I consumed in my life. <laughs> yeah, it was like a Gus burger. I was not a healthy person. <laughs> it was a Gus burger and a filet of fish were like the last few things I consumed as a, as a uh, meat eater in my youth. That, w that could drive one away from the meats, yes. <laughs> I mean, I don't think they had a direct impact. I think it was something that was swimming in my head for a while, but uh, yeah. So I consumed the famous Gus burger, <laughs> yeah. But yeah, that's, so that's my experience of UVA. <laughs> I, I played rugby while I was there. So again, this idea that I, I'm willing to try all different kinds of things. So I played rugby. I was just thinking about it because the Gus Berger place wasn't that far from like Rugby Road mm -hmm. and where the rugby field was. Um, and so my first, I played two, two seasons. And the first season, the coach thought that I was going to be one of these short, fast people. Like, okay, this, you know, the short, fast girls, ah, you know. But then it became very quick, it became very evident very quickly that I didn't actually want the ball. <laughs> you know what I mean? It was like... Um, and, and thus, my second season was not all that <laughs> memorable. <laughs> and the, yeah, your second season was your last season. It was, yes. So, so uh, what were you writing? Like, were you writing in a journal? Like, were you doing secret <sighs> down-low writing that nobody knew about? I did take, I took, I did take a class. I took a uh, poetry writing class with Rita Dove, so former poet laureate and uh, Pulitzer Prize winning poet at UVA. I took her class. Um, so I took, I did, it's funny, now that you mention it, I took two or three poetry writing classes and I took one playwriting class and that was the class that I got like my worst grade in ever ever and I, and I was you know it was one of those things that I wasn't used to getting bad grades and I got a bad grade in playwriting and if I had to look back on it it was because um, the class was full of actors and so it was the kind of thing where we would read each other's poem, uh, read each other's plays and so the students would ask you hey can you be Alice today can you be whatever and it's true like I was I was a terrible reader of people's work considering mm -hmm. that you know everybody mm -hmm. else were actors so I was always like is that why I got a bad grade in that class or you know what was that all about but yes I did take playwriting can you put on your uh, creative writing teacher hat on for a moment it's always on okay great when I was in uh, when I was in grad school uh, studying playwriting I got a B plus on a play, and I was and and I was like, what? I f I mean I finished it, right? Yeah, it had a beginning, yeah, yeah, yeah. middle, and yeah. end. What Aristotle else, would have been happy. What yeah. else do you need? And I got a B plus, and I so I I've since then, in reaction to that, have come to believe that in creative endeavors you've either accomplished it when you're in creative educational endeavors, you've either accomplished the task or you haven't. So it's an A or an F. Talk <laughs> me off mm, the ledge. A or an F. It's interesting because my dad used to talk about that. He, my dad is, um, has a PhD in chemistry. And in chemistry world, he would say when he was getting his PhD, that's, you either got an A or it was a C. There was no in between there. So I'm like, oh, so. Mm -hmm. As far as, I, I do think that in some ways, creative writing and arts in general should be pass-fail. Like, I really do think that. But I can also see why, in certain ways, 
that might not also be a good idea. But it's true, like the idea of getting like a B plus on your on your play, like that mm, that's not how I roll. So you know, and, I, and I'm very open with my students about like the various kinds of criteria that I have. You know, it is. It's about doing the assignments. It's about participating in class. It's about the idea of taking risks in their final portfolio. Mm -hmm. You know, all those kind of fun things. Yeah. So yeah. And I I was late to grad school. I was in my late 30s when I went. So I was very very serious because I was a terrible undergrad and I wanted to get it right. I wanted to be serious about my education. So uh, I wanted a 4.0. I was like, I'm attending, I'm not missing a single class, I'm not missing a single assignment, and I'm engaging in every discussion, and I'm finishing everything. And I was like, that's gonna get me a 4.0. So the B plus was in my first year of a three-year program, and it told me, you have already failed at getting that 4.0, and I was like, I mean, it's been years, and I'm still bitter about it. Well, that's what they say about Tom Brady, right? Because I was in Michigan when Tom Brady was there, and supposedly... Uh, and I am the Tom Brady of playwriting, so... And yeah, as I knew, as I was aware, and I do believe that Tom Brady went, like, what, 384th in the draft, the year that he was drafted, and he still cries about it, so... 199, but oh, who's 199? counting? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> but nice. Yeah, well, that actually uh, segues to something I want to talk about. Um, I'm a New Englander, you're a New Englander, I am a lifelong New England Patriots fan, and I know more about them than uh, is safe and healthy, uh, like, such as Tom Brady was drafted 199th. I, you know, it's funny, because it comes <laughs> up in another play that I've written, so I should have known that. Oh, yeah. yeah so. Hilarious. Uh, yeah, so uh, what is it? This is something that uh, I've, I've asked myself. This is actually the first question I had as a writer that I was trying to answer. And mine was more specific to New Hampshire, but it still applies. What does it mean to be from New Hampshire was the thing that I was asking myself and thinking about in my writing because there was something very particular about the people in that place. And, and uh, for a while I was separating myself, like I'm not a people from that place, I'm investigating those people and I realized, oh, I am that people from that place. But anyway, so I would ask that question, what does it mean to be from this place? Have you thought about um, what it means to be from a place, having been born in another place and brought to this place and growing up? Like, have, do you think, have you thought about that at any point in your life? Hmm. What it means to be, I don't think of it in terms of place. I think of it more in terms of perspective, right? Which in some ways, they're tied, right? So perspective often comes from place, right? But um, for me, it really is about perspective. And what I mean by that is, so, you know, I'm from the North Shore of Boston, but I do have a, I mean, it's not complicated to me, but other people think it's complicated. You know, I, I was born in Vietnam. I'm adopted, so I was raised on the North Shore of Boston. Um, I'm transracially adopted, so my parents had three children uh, who were white biologically, and then adopted my brother, who's um, biracial, half white, half black, and then they adopted me, half black, half Vietnamese. You know, and so we grew up in this town, which is predominantly white. You know, my grandparents in Door County were Germans. You know, my grandparents in Boston were Irish. So for me, it was always about perspective. It wasn't necessarily about place, but it's just like, so whose perspectives you know, it's like, for example, um, last year or the year before, you know, my family, we were, we were in New Hampshire at this uh, small lake house my parents have. And, and there was one night when, for whatever reason, we all began singing, like, these crazy Irish songs. And it's the fact that I know them, you know what I mean? It's like, it's, it's kind of nuts. Like, how do I know all these Irish songs, you know? Um, so, yeah, so for me, like I said, it's more about that that I'm interested in. And, and in some ways, I kind of feel like that I... Um, because what I really want for all writers, and again, right now, I'm thinking about 2022, like, let's face it, we're writing at a fraught time, right? The whole question of who has the right to tell what stories, you know, and, and again, who can do those kinds of things. And for me, because I have this weird perspective where I have feet in many worlds, to me, it's a kind of freedom, and it's a freedom that I think everybody could have if you do the work and you do the research. So, for example, this book, um, When I'm Gone, Look for Me in the East, is set in Mongolia, right? And it's, um, it's Buddhist monks who go looking for a reincarnation in Mongolia. I am not a monk. I am not a man. I am not Mongolian, um, you know? But again, I did the research. I went there. I talked to a lot of people, et cetera, et cetera. So, so again, I, I, just, I keep coming back to the idea that for me, it's more about perspective than place. Having said that, though, when it comes to place, you know, Massachusetts, there's just so much to laugh about, you know? Like, I don't know if you know the Route 1 in um, Massachusetts. So Route 1 is this famous highway. Do you know Route oh, 1? Oh, I know Route 1. Yes. Yeah. I won't go on, but yes. Yeah. You know, so it's this crazy highway that just has, like, it's kitsch. It's, it's, it's really a highway almost from like the 1950s. Like they, there's yes. still motels and, and just like the different kinds of restaurants that you see. And I just... mean, old school, old school 1950s Chinese restaurants, putt-putts. Yeah. 
Yeah. Uh, batting cages. That's what I know about Route One. Yeah, that's Sog it. Saugus. Yeah, and there's there's also this great um, strip club called DB's Golden Banana. Never heard of it. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. Well, it's been there forever, and I have to say, it has an outsized place in my imagination because as kids, we would drive past. We'd be like, and my brother, my brother's name is Derek, so it was DB Derek Barry. We'd be like, DB's Golden Banana. You know what I mean? So, but yeah. So I'm thinking about, but I recognize that there's ways in which those places, you know. I, I inhabit them, and they're, they're somehow inside me, and they, and they spring up in, in strange ways. Do you have that feeling that I was experiencing at first of, of, not, of seeing, it, seeing that place as not being part of it? Mm. Sometimes when I go back, because, again, I don't, I, I'm surprised at the number of friends when I go back who do have the accent. You know, these are friends of mine who went, like, a really good friend of mine went to Yale, like, you know, super accomplished people who have these thick Boston accents, which just, you know, they sound like they're out of Goodwill hunting, you know? Oh, like, yeah. Oh, oh, I like yeah. them apples, you know? And I'm like, woo. Um, and so, so I feel, sometimes I feel like I'm outside of it when I'm around people who are speaking the, with the accent, you know, because I don't have that. But other than that, I, I don't know, I very quickly feel like I'm right back in it. Mm -hmm. So. Talking about perspective, uh, there was a moment in the play that uh, caught my attention when the white jazz player spoke in a very certain and specific way, and and I, it kind of caught me off guard, and I was like, oh, I wonder what's going to happen. And it was it was a very nice. I think it was a silent moment, like it wasn't specifically addressed with words. But um, for those of you who haven't seen the play yet, um, and this isn't a spoiler in any way, uh, the older black character just looks at him and says everything that needs to be said about speaking in this dialect that he chose. Yeah, that's an excellent example of me getting out of the way and letting the actors like figure things out. So originally that moment was very different. Um, it was basically that the actor you know, says those particular lines in that particular way and the older, the older character, the older black character kind of plays along, like that was the original writing of it. And again, in the workshop process, people are like, uh, you know, uh-uh, that's, that's not what happens here. You know, I'm like, oh, okay. And, and being open to hearing their suggestions for like, actually, and so we tried a couple of different things and I had a couple of suggestions and they did as well and then realizing what that moment needed to be, right? And so for me, that's one of the, one of the um, strengths, obviously, there's many strengths of the theater, but you know, as a fiction writer, it's just you at a laptop doing your own thing and you don't have those eyes and those ears to help you see other possibilities. So actually having, you know, actors and directors and, and scenic designers and all those folks like help you think through through those kinds of things, it does. They, it brings out strong moments like that, which I couldn't have seen on my own. Did you uh, did you uh, see it differently? Did you agree with the perspective that was coming out of the room? I did once, it, you know, because at first, my at first I was like, well, it's two thousand, it's two thousand one. We have to remember that. Like, so sometimes when people when people have issues with uh, with the the white jazz man, you know, um, because obviously we're living in twenty twenty two, like things are different the way in which people think about race and these kinds of things, right? But it's like it's two thousand one, and so to me, I'm actually a little bit more sympathetic to him, um, maybe in some ways that other people are, but. So at first, I didn't really push back. I, well, I did. I was just like, well, it's 2001. Maybe, you know, that other, the older black character wouldn't have the same kind of issues because, again, but hearing them talk about it and then seeing it actually acted the way it was, I was like, oh, yeah, that's, that's what it is. Mm -hmm. So uh, I find myself having this conversation with students, uh, and I'm wondering if you f find yourself talking about this in the classroom, uh, students who are very new to any sort of, like, artistic expression, writing, et cetera, and uh, going down a road that is uh, inappropriate, usually it's uh, racial in some way, and they just don't understand because they haven't had these conversations before. Um, do, you have the, do you have these conversations in your classroom? Do you end up seeing this happen with your writing students? I do, and it's true that on the spectrum of those kinds of conversations, I'm always somebody who I come out um, it's terrible because I feel like in certain kinds of ways it almost, I have a joke among my friends that I, I sometimes feel like I sound like Rush Limbaugh or somebody. I'm like, oh, yeah, you know? Um, 
because I really do come down on the side, I'm more conservative in the sense that I truly believe that the contract is that the artist has the right to create whatever art they want and that the viewer has the right to be offended, right? And to me, that is the contract. I understand that nobody has a right to like a book deal, nobody has a right to a movie deal, like that's a whole other thing. Nobody has the right to be in the Whitney Biennial, right? But at the end of the day, I'm like, you have the right to tell what story you want and your reader has the right to be like, ah, that's not working, you know? Um, and so, but I, I put it obviously in a larger context for them of thinking these things through, you know, and if your work's doing X, Y, or Z and you have these kinds of readings of it, you need to be aware of this because of what it will do for your audience or, you know, what have you. And also in thinking about the idea of intention, you know, but it's true that I'm somebody who I, I feel like, I don't, who does, you know, want to tell all kinds of stories in the human family, you know? Um, I was talking with the writer about my very first book, which is set in Vietnam, so She Weeps Each Time You're Born, again, is set in Vietnam. Obviously, I was born in Vietnam, but as I mentioned, you know, I'm transracially adopted, and so I don't speak Vietnamese, I wasn't raised in, in, in Asian community. But I, I mean, I'm very proud to be Asian, but at the same time, like, I mostly identify as black. And so to me, in thinking about that particular novel, in some ways, I mean, obviously my name is on it's Quan Barry, and so, you know, but in some ways I'm like, that's a book about Vietnam that was written by somebody who primarily identifies as black, right? And so it's the idea that, again, if you do your research, you know, you can, you can tell these stories. And at the end of the day, you also have to be prepared for a reader who's like, no, I, I, that still rings inauthentically to me, and that's their right to think that. Hmm. I want to go back to, um, I want to find out about you discovering writing. So you said you weren't uh, actively pursuing being a writer. You were theoretically maybe going to get into government when you're at UVA. Uh, what did you go to grad school for? I did, so I, I went and, I, I graduated from UVA, I took a year off and lived at home for a year working in a bookstore, and then I went to graduate school and got my MFA in poetry. Oh, so you were like, I'm gonna be a poet. I, do, I don't think anybody thinks that really, do they? I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know, maybe I, maybe I shouldn't say that because I don't think I have any students here, but. Um, <laughs> Did I think, because in some ways, you know, except for like, well, I guess I did have some models. So for example, Rita Dove, you know, African-American poet, like I said, Pulitzer Prize winner, um, former poet laureate. So the, I, I did see a path, you know, like, oh, she's a poet. She's, you know, I mean, obviously you recognize that there's like two Rita Doves in the entire world, you know, that kind of thing. But um, I don't think I, and again, it, it comes to the idea of outcome. Like if I had really thought like, I'm going to be a poet, I think that would have been a really. So what's the difference between I want to be a poet, or I am a poet, and I'm going to study poetry. Hmm. What is the difference between that? I don't, again, I, I think. Is I it just do, a mental trick? I think it might be, because again, if, to me, if, like even thinking about like, wanting to be a playwright, it's like the whole question of what makes you something doesn't have to do with what's out there. It is, you know? So for example, in some ways, I, I even recently still sometimes have problems or issues calling myself a poet because I feel like poet is something that you aspire to be. I aspire to be a poet. You know, I, I heard somebody once refer to themselves like, oh yeah, I'm an artist. And I was like, like to me, like to call yourself an artist is like, that's what you aspire to be. You know what I mean? It's just like, ah. Oh. It's the so, unachievable goal that you constantly work towards. In like, a way. Like being perfect. Yeah. You know, cause it's like Maya Angelou talked about how like she aspires to be a Christian, like to call yourself a Christian, like that's actually a really high bar. You know what I mean? Like, um, so yeah, so for me, like the idea of calling yourself a poet or, or those kinds of things is like. So what happened to you in grad school? Like where, <laughs> at what point did this change where you're like, this is going to be a thing I pursue? Yeah, so it goes back to my whole thing about luck and being in the right place at the right time. So in graduate school, I ended up getting a fellowship. So I went to Stanford. So um, one of the more like, prestigious fellowships at Stanford, the Stegner Fellow, uh, it's a two-year fellowship there. I got that fellowship right after my MFA. And then actually Wisconsin, we actually also have one, a very prestigious fellowship here, our Wisconsin Institute Fellows. And so from Stanford, I ended up getting the fellowship here and I came here on the fellowship. And then when I was here for a year, they asked me, which never happens, it would never happen now um, in 2022, but they asked me, they're like, hey, do you, do you wanna join the faculty? So I never even went through a job interview, I never did any of that stuff that you have to, so again, I was in the right place at the right time. But what about the writing? Like through this whole period, getting your MFA, going to Stanford, coming here, like, what were you writing? Were you writing, like, 
How was that happening for you? Mm -hmm. So when I was in graduate school, I, again, similar to when I was um, in high school, I was the poet who tried everything. So when I would pass something in, like one week, maybe it's like a, you know, like a New York school style poem. Maybe the next week it's uh, a sonnet. Maybe the next week it's, so I was something, because I didn't, I didn't know. And I'm like, I'm going to try on all these different things and see what happens. Um, and I've always had that just, you know, I actually had a professor at Stanford who told me, <laughs> she told me that I had to choose. She's like, you can't be, a, you know, you either have to be a poet or you have to be a playwright or you have to be a fiction writer. You can't do it all. And then she also said, and this is actually probably what really holds true. She said to me, and she's kind of yelling at me a little bit. She said, because I was fairly young compared to the, the other um, fellows there. She said, you know, you have this devil may care attitude and I've let it go this long, but... <laughs> You know, and I remember, like, I remember her saying that and thinking, she's right. Like, it's a compliment. You know, mm -hmm. like, I do have this devil may care attitude. It's, it's gonna take me far. Like, I don't, I don't think I thought that, but just that idea of like, why not? Like, why take it too seriously, right? So, as far as the writing part goes, I've just always just done whatever. I don't know. It's kind of really super intuitive. And then I will say, when I came here to Wisconsin, I was surrounded by amazing fiction writers, including Anthony Doerr, who wrote um, *All the Light We Cannot See*. He was a fellow the same year I was. And that year, I decided I'm, I want to learn how to write fiction. And so there were three of us originally in this writing group who were all fellows together. Um, so by the time you got here, sorry to interrupt, mm -hmm. uh, you hadn't published. You published poetry. I had one published poem, you had, which is nothing. By the time you got all the way to Wisconsin, you had published one poem. One poem. Okay, that's amazing. Just <laughs> wanted to flag that. <laughs> the fact that it only published like just one poem. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah I mean, I'm just sort of acknowledging what you said, like this sort of series of like, I mean, mm -hmm. you... Like, and that one poem I got because of Stanford. So it was like all of us at Stanford, they, they published like some journal in England. Like, took, and that's the only reason I had one. Right. Yeah. I'm, I'm assuming... Because I, I don't know you, I say this because I don't know you that well, but to, to, to pass everything off as a series of like just lucky events and being in the right place at the right time probably discounts uh, a significant talent that you have that it was probably recognized by others regardless of the amount of publications you have. Just, just throwing that out there as your uh, <laughs> unhired therapist. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, you, again, it's the idea of luck, but, but yeah, the second part of it is you have to be ready when the door opens, right? Because if the door opens and you don't have whatever you need to back that up, and yeah, so. So what happened, so did something change for you when you, when you were like, I'm gonna, I wanna learn how to write fiction, like, did it, did it just sort of like connect for you? Did you like, oh, this is the form I'm really comfortable in? No, it's the, it's the idea that for me, because I always like to do very, very, very different things. So my poetry books, all four of them, are very different formally in some ways. And thinking about my novels, again, the first novel um, is a lyric novel set in Vietnam. It's very sad. My second novel is a comedy set on the North Shore of Boston. I mean, it's very comedic. You know, this book is very meditative. It's set in Mongolia. Um, and thinking about my plays, again, everything is very... I don't like to repeat myself, right? And so um, so for me, it's, it's weird to think that even though I was learning how to write fiction... Um, um, in 2000 when I was a fellow, I didn't publish my first novel until 2015, right? So in that time in between, I was writing both, I was writing mostly poetry. Um, but in thinking about it, it's the idea that, um, so it wasn't that, I think when I finally turned to fiction in roughly 2013, when I started working on my first novel, I think it was simply because I felt like, not that I'm done with poetry, but I... I recognize that I didn't want to keep doing the same things. And so it's the idea of wanting to change, you know, my relationship to the page. And I think that's ultimately what propelled me to playwriting, right? So, okay, I, I, got the, I, I understand how this fiction thing works. Now, uh, what ways, what can I do now that, again, changes, like I said, my relationship to, to writing, right? And so it's like working in, in plays. What, so what do you think... What do you think is the, uh, the difference between a story that belongs in a novel and a story that belongs on the stage? So for me, again, I'm sure for other playwrights it's very different, but for me in thinking about like poetry versus fiction versus playwriting, um, I realize that in poetry, the poems that I write, it's when I'm interested in a question. If I have a question that I'm interested in figuring out, I put that in, in poems. So poems for me are about questions, they're not about answers. For me, fiction, like long fiction, novel, really is about... Um, can the story support like long form telling, right? And I'm just realizing that just for me, when it comes to playwriting, the thing that happens mostly in my plays, it is about compression of time. So this particular poem, because I uh, this poem, this particular play, I have written other plays too. This play probably does cover the most time 
and even then it's only like two or three weeks in this play. But other plays that I've written really take place like over a single day or what have you. So for me at least, it is about like time and just thinking about, but I recognize that there's many plays out there that cover vast amounts of time, but that's just sort of how I think about it. And many books that compress time, right? Uh, do you think about audiences in different ways based on what it is you're writing? I don't, but my editor does. <laughs> so I don't. You know, it's funny to me because the truth of the matter is, again, my first book that was set in Vietnam came out in 2015, and that this book, which is set in Mongolia, was actually finished. And I brought it to my editor, and my editor was like, uh, do you have anything else? And I was like, oh. And I told her that the idea that I had for the comedy about field hockey. She's like, yes, yes, write that. So I was like, mm, okay. So I wrote that book, and then I brought it, and then, she, then they decided to to have the field hockey book come out next and to have this Mongolia, Mongolian book come out third, right? And their reason for that was they, they were thinking about audiences. I thought they were wrong, but it, it turns out maybe they were right. I thought that people who read, you know, like sad books about Vietnam are not the same people who read books about a girls field hockey team in the 1980s and that those are not the same people who read. But apparently maybe they are, you know, which is like weird to me. Um, so yeah, so I don't think in terms of audience in that sense, but again, the so more audience or like you're not thinking about a person on the other end of the thing that you're creating. No. I, if I am, it's generically in the sense of like, oh, okay, did I say this in scene two? If I did, did that person, will, you know, if they didn't hear it, do I need to say it again in scene three so that, it, you know, if it gets dropped or something, you know, it, I think about it generically like that, mm -hmm. but not in terms mm -hmm. of like a demographic or, or, or anything like that. No, I mean in, sen in the sense of like there's a, I'm, I guess I'm getting at something that I care about and I'm trying to find a way to say it. <laughs> uh, it's, I think about audience in the sense that they exist and that by writing something that is intended for somebody else on the other end, there, is, there are certain, uh, certain obligations that you have um, that you're not writing this for yourself. You're, giving, you know, you're writing this for an audience or a reader or whatever, so you need to create something you know, thinking about them, and that's sort of my, that's my approach. And like you said before, like not every playwright has the same approach to everything, which is why I asked mm -hmm. you that question. Yeah. No, when it comes to audience, I, have, I hear what you're saying, and it's true that I think about it a little bit, but I think the reason why I don't think about audience that much has to do with poetry, right? So it's true that as a poet, I can ask a lot of my audience. I can expect them to know things. I can, I can expect them to Google things. So it's true that when I write a poem, if you don't know that, that's on you, right? And more and more poets are doing that. There are poets now, you know, po poets who are multilingual, bilingual, who are, you know, moving in and out of languages that maybe people don't know. And again, in poetry, it's a, it's a very high bar. So it's like, that's on the audience, that's not necessarily on me, the poet, right? And so because I come from that, I have a bit of that. And I recognize mm -hmm. it in my fiction, that there are ways in which, particularly my very first novel, which it's true, like it's, I don't think it's a hard book, but I can recognize that on certain kinds of readers, I am asking them to do work, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so I recognize that there's different kinds of work you can ask. So in poetry, I can ask certain kinds of work. In fiction, I can ask, ask different kinds of work. And then in playwriting, where obviously people are seeing things, but they don't have a text in front of them, it's a different kind of work you can ask them to do. So well, I, also I am Also, a moment passes rather quickly in a play, whereas I can read this book, mm -hmm. and I have this with me, mm -hmm. If, if I'm stuck on a word or a reference that I'm not understanding, or if I'm reading one of your poems and I'm not understanding mm -hmm. something, I get the choice to stop, mm -hmm. you know, inform myself and then move forward. Whereas in a play, you don't really have that opportunity. And if you are, by the way, if any of you are whipping out your phone in the middle of the play while something's <laughs> going on, put it away. Don't do that. Yeah. No, absolutely. And I was talking about with my, my poetry students about how in a, in a poem, you can put the payoff, like even in a two-page poem, you can have the payoff happen really late in the poem because ultimately it's only two pages. So the investment is not, you know, whereas I, I was talking to them, you know, in a play, if I put something like, I have to think about that, you know, like where is this appearing in the play? Is it too late into the play? You know, all those kinds of things. So, so I do think about it generically. I'm not thinking about it. I think... But again, going back to what you had said earlier about the idea of an audience of one, I mean, that is one of the things that kind of propelled me into writing was I'm always interested to see, like, what am I thinking about? And that's kind of where I work it out. Mm -hmm. so. I know we're, I'm jumping around a little bit, but I, uh, I'm really curious to hear about that. If there was a moment earlier, like you talked about how you had these books and you, are, you had a relationship with a publisher and you were strategizing what to do, but 
how did you get to, like, was there a moment earlier on before this where you, when you, you know, between that and the moment where you're like, I want to study fiction, like, was there a moment where you were like, holy shit, I, I get this, like, I'm, I'm, I'm good at this, I can do, like, how did you get from studying it to becoming, like, a published author of multiple... Yeah, I don't... I don't know. I, I just don't have that. I mean, I, I kind of hear what you're saying. Like, I guess, are you, are you talking about in some ways, like, like the belief in yourself? Because again, you had mentioned earlier about no, that idea. Self of... oh, self-awareness. And then how did you actually, like, how did it come together for you where, because lots of people can be good novelists and, re and be like, oh my God, I'm good at this and never get published. So how did you come to be the Amy Quamberry we all come to love today? <laughs> Answer in yeah. 30 I get, seconds. I get it. <laughs> I mean, for me, I, I mean, I've said it before, but it really is like luck. You know, I mean, like, I really feel like, I mean, obviously I could back it up when those doors open, but I don't, yeah. So to me, I, I don't know. I don't know how to, how to answer that. You didn't, so there wasn't any, there wasn't any sort of like, when you started to write, like you just, you're, you understood what you were writing and you had a voice that was fully formed and you knew how to approach 100,000 words just, you know, just at the get-go? I, you know, that's one reason. It's funny because I'd like to think that my students do like me. I'd like to think, but there's a part of me that recognizes that I oftentimes I feel like Yoda because <laughs> so much of what I know is intuitive. Yeah, like okay. I, I have a hard time, like it's just intuitive to me. Yeah. And I think that when it comes to storytelling, I think actually people overthink it. Poetry is different because poetry has, it does, there's a vocabulary when you think about things like sonnets and things like that, there are rules you have to know, right? But when it comes to storytelling, I'm always telling my students, you know so much about storytelling already. Character, point of view, setting, conflict, you know, because we all tell stories, we've all watched TV, we've all seen movies, we read books, right? So when it comes to storytelling, to me, like, that's probably the, that's the thing that's actually we're built storytelling, like, that's what we do, right? We are individual stories. Amy is a story, right? Um, and so for me, that part of it, that's like the easy part of it in certain kinds of ways. So, um, but in thinking about your question, I'm not try trying to dodge it, I'm just trying to think like, I don't have an answer, it's just like. I'm gonna keep asking it in multiple ways. Okay. <laughs> All right. Uh, no, we'll actually move on. Um, Let's so, talk politics. <laughs> the next 45 minutes. Uh, I want to talk about, so as you heard at the, at the beginning, I said something about this idea of success, and I'd like to hear your thoughts on success and how you see it in general and as applied to yourself. Yeah, success, I think if you think about it, um, to even backtrack a little bit, there's something that I've seen and I've heard writers talk about, and they talk about the idea of the writer's sickness, Right? So a friend of mine calls it, she's like, oh, it's the writer's sickness. And the writer's sickness, which I'm sure happens not just to writers, but all kinds of artists, right? it's a kind of jealousy. So it's the idea of seeing somebody else get something or you know, win an award or have whatever, and it's like, oh, wait, I, that should have been mine, ah, you know, or what have you. And so it's the recognition, and the writer's sickness happens at, like, at all levels. You know what I mean? Like you could be an undergrad in class and somebody wins an undergrad award, then you get to the next level, and it's like, I got fellowships at Stanford. Other people, you know, where I was didn't. You know, it's there. Then you get to the next level, and so and so got a Guggenheim, and you did whatever. It's like it never ends, right? And so for me, what's been helpful is this recognition that everybody has this, and it's like I, I could live in that space where you're always kind of like keeping count. You know what I mean? But it's not a fun space to live in. So for me, success. Um, it really is, and especially because so many of these things take so long to actually come out into the world. So it's like, I wrote that book really in like 2016 and it's only out in the world now, right? So in many ways for me, this success isn't necessarily the publication of it, it really is the writing of it, you know, and finishing it at the end of the day. So, I mean, that sounds, that's not to say that I don't ever fall into those moments of seeing certain things and being like, hmm, you know what I mean? But, um, but I recognize that, um, and again, it's, it's about being fortunate to be, you know, I'm at an R1 institution. Like, I have nothing to complain about at the end of the day. You know what I mean? Um, I mean, sure, you can complain about something. Thanks. Thank, <laughs> thank you. But, um, but yeah, so success. I, yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't want to say like I make it sound like I am so above that or, or things like that. But yeah, I, I mean. I think it's a hard thing. I, mean, I, I ask this question all the time and I think about it all the time because I think it's a hard thing for 
uh, us to acknowledge because it's so personal. And I think it also is hard for the folks that I've spoken to, because literally I've spoken to Pulitzer winners and Tony Award winners uh, who view themselves as not successful. And it's a really hard thing to hear, but I think, I think sometimes it's, um, it's a really sincere response to the question. I think sometimes it's really difficult to acknowledge in the context of what you were saying earlier about there are people who are receiving all the things and some people aren't. And so there's an awareness of where we are on the continuum of artists. And, uh, and so it's, it's sometimes like, I can imagine not wanting to say, yeah, I am like to somebody who, who is like me, you know, lower, like in a different place on the continuum, uh, yeah, I feel like quite a success because look at my cupboard of awards, you know. Um, but I, but also I am just—it's uh, the only time I really poke in these questions. Like I tend not to want to uh, be uh, challenging in any way. Uh, but it's this one question that I will probably continue to do that to every person I I talk to. I'm just fascinated by our relationship to this idea and, and also in a bigger sense, like how, how we, how capitalism, you know, uh, feeds this whole concept of what is success and how it so often relates to how much money you're earning. Mm-hmm. Again, it goes back, I'm just being redundant at this point, but even thinking about the fact that Tom Brady still cries about being drafted yeah. at 199, you know what I mean? But interestingly, in the play, and this is not a spoiler, but towards the, like the, one of the first scenes that we see with Charles, Charles actually says at some point, you know, um, Latimer says to him, wow, you've come a long way, because, you know, they're in a jazz club and, you know, what have you, and Latimer says, you've come a long way from being that little kid who grew up and wanted to be a jazz musician, and, and Charles says, you know, maybe I have, but it doesn't feel like it. And so in some ways, like Charles, and it comes out all throughout the play, he keeps thinking that he, he just hasn't made it yet, he's not where he wants to be. And yet, if you step back and think about it, he's playing clubs in New York City. Like that, for many jazz artists, would be like a sign of success, right? But again, it's that idea that in his mind, he's not where he wants to be. He hasn't succeeded. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, so. Right, right. So, uh, the Matillian, the Ma- Metalinian. Metalinian. I haven't said it out loud yet. That was the first time, and I thought I was going to get it right. Oh, I'm so mad at myself. There's different pronunciations because, like, the British say one thing, maybe, and Americans say so. You, you know. Uh, yeah, I was totally saying it the British way. <laughs> That's what I thought. The Middle Indian debate was your first pub, uh, produced play, right? So, uh, has this experience motivated you to want to keep writing more plays, getting more plays produced? Yes, yes. And so as part of Wisconsin Rights here um, in Madison, Wisconsin, so Forward Theater has Wisconsin Rights that they do every two years. And so I have a play, which right now I admit it has a boring title. It's just called The Bridge. I'm working on it. But super pronounceable. (laughs) It is. Something to be said about that. So um, that would be part of their Wisconsin Rights staged reading festival later this year, I think in May. Right on, right on. Um, well, congrats on that. And that's the play that mentions, or it used to, in an earlier draft, it mentioned the Tom Brady thing, but I think I did take that out. So. <laughs> uh, do you have uh, future aspirations? Like, are there specific things that you want to do that maybe you haven't been able to just jump into yet that you hope to do in the future? Yeah, so I have written... Um, <laughs> I have written like a, a pilot, a TV pilot, and a screenplay. Um, and so, yeah, it's a weird, I don't know if you've done like any of that kind of, you know, it's a, it's a weird world and getting eyeballs on it. And I, like I have a meeting on Monday with somebody, but who knows, you know? And it's also true that these, it's interesting, for me, that's something that I like. So I mean, obviously there's, there's comedy a bit in the Mytilenean debate, but it's true that one, for whatever reason, when I write screenplays or a TV pilot, like, it's very comedic. Like, it's a place for me to be, like, really, really funny in a way, mm-hmm. which I maybe not so much in other spaces. So that's one of the things that I like about working in different genres. It's like, oh, this is the space where I... Interestingly, for me, playwriting, it's actually the space where I have... Um, how do I do in other places? But where I have, like, more characters of color. And I talked about this in an essay. I like writing characters of color for the stage because I don't have to explain things. So in a book, I have to be like, Car- she was caramel colored, or, you know, or whatever. It's yeah. like this idea that you have to... <laughs> they were cinnamon. Their skin shone like cinnamon. Or, yeah. you know, but, like, but when you're on stage, it's like, that's who they are. I don't have to do it. You know what I mean? So I yeah. really like that. So it's interesting to work in these different things and to see how they bring out different aspects of what you're interested in. 
And do you have any other novels you're working on? So I do. I have the first chapter, um, which I'm super excited to get back to. Um, basically, it's an adult version of like Lord of the Flies. So a group of tourists get stuck in Antarctica and the whole question of... And so in my mind, I think of it actually as a horror book, but not in the sense of like Stephen King, more like Shirley Jackson horror. So, um, but yeah, I'm very interested in that book. Awesome. Will they survive? That's the question. Will they survive? Right, and there's the cliffhanger end for our conversation. <laughs> thank you for doing this. Fabulous. Thank you for having me. So now is the part of the show where I read the end credits. There's often like an underscore of music happening while I say this. So just hum to yourself. <laughs> uh, thank you, Amy. Give her a big round of applause. You just did that. But do it again. <laughs> Buy all of her books from your local independent bookseller or out in the lobby. I think they might still be. I bought this one out in the lobby. Um, and if you haven't already, come see her wonderful play here at Forward Theater. It runs in person and digitally through March 13th. I also want to thank everybody at Forward Theater who so graciously agreed to create this event despite neither of us doing it before. Uh, thank you, Julie, Jen, Scott, uh, Sarah, Celia. There are other people. I'm sorry. Uh, big thank you to Brad in the booth. Um, the Subtext Podcast is presented by America Theater Magazine, which is a program of Theater Communications Group. If you like theater, follow the work of this magazine. Uh, thank you to Rob Weiner-Kent, who is the editor-in-chief of American Theater and allows me to do this uh, podcast every month. And also thank you to my associate producer, KJ Jarbo. The theme song that I uh, beautifully hummed earlier um, is by International Pen Pal, and it's titled Hi. You can find their album on iTunes. Um, thank you for listening, and thank you for being here in person. I think it went okay. We did it? It's okay. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Most people don't listen this far into the episodes, but I end every episode with a shout out to a play, and I call it The Play Filling Me Up This Month. But this month for this episode, I want to say the people filling me up this month are all of you for coming here in person. So now I say go out and be your own biggest fans. Thank you. Thank you.